spiritual teachers, right? And so we come into contact with spiritual needs. And sometimes when the children come into our classroom, it is a spiritual attack. Have you ever been attacked spiritually by a child? Amen, right? And every one of us has that little Billy where you think of it and you go, oh man, that's, uh, they make you groan. But I ask the question, if, uh, In today's society, does it feel like maybe there's more and more of these kids coming into our classroom? And we have one person nodding her head. She's from the public school. She was saying earlier, in our public schools, amen. So what's causing this? And I'm going to introduce a term, and this is my own term. This is my own spiritual insight based on my observations with the children that I am involved with. But I'm going to call what's happening in our society, I'm going to call it technological institutionalization. Big, long words, right? And I'm going to explain here. What is technological institutionalization? Now, I showed you this slide earlier, but it said, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. And I asked the question before. I said, are we seeing the last generation before Christ? And I think in our spirit, as the spirit pours out, we feel like Jesus is coming, right? And Jesus is coming soon, and it's very possible that he's coming sooner than we could imagine. It could happen immediately, but we all think that maybe we have a little bit of time, but we're not sure how much. But is this the last generation? Now, speaking of generations, have you ever heard of the generations that, uh, that are happening in our world right now? You have Generation Y, the millennials, Generation Z, and you have Generation Alpha. I'm going to define this for, for just a moment here. The millennials, also known as Generation Y, this is the net generation. It was, they were born between 1980 and 2000. And sometimes if we get misguided, we think that we're still trying to reach the millennials. But here's the sad fact is that the millennials are the parents and the millennials are some of our teachers. There's about 76 million millennials in the United States and the millennials, they grew up in an electronics-filled and increasingly online and socially networked world. They never knew not having technology. That is the millennial generation. How many of you are millennials born between 1980 and 2000? Okay, what year were you born? 88, okay. Anybody else? Okay. 87? 91. And so they have a very unique to us, older people, mindset because they never not knew technology. And so that's kind of foreign to us, but that's the millennials. But then after the millennials, there's this next generation called Generation Z. And I know that they focused very heavily on this at Youth Congress, I believe, right? And they said, so Generation Z is from the mid-90s to 2010, the generation after millennials. As with why Generation Z have used internet all of their life, They're comfortable with technology and social media. They never knew any other environment. Texting is their preferred communication, followed by social media. And they spend more time online. They use phones more than TV for entertainment. And they prefer to have both simultaneously, television and phone on at the same time, or a tablet and a phone. Do you guys do that, millennials? Do you ever have the the double source of technology? 
So these, Generation Z, which is why they talked about it at Youth Congress, those are the teenagers. Now, when I came, I come as the children's editor, so I am actually addressing the next generation in our classroom. And that is those that are born after 2010, with it, with it being almost 2020. Ten years old and below is this Generation Alpha. How many of you are teaching Generation Alpha right now? Generation Alpha, that is the name that they have given to this generation. And who is, the question is, who is Generation Alpha? Because you have to know who you're teaching in order to teach them, right? Horrifying statistic. They did a poll amongst these millennials, these Generation Y, Generation Z, Generation Alpha is too young to do the poll, but they started asking questions and they wanted to ask, what is moral and immoral? What is right and what is wrong? And so you have, for example, at 24%, one out of four of these millennials and Generation Z thought, only one out of four, thought that watching stuff is wrong. Meaning three out of four thought that that's an okay thing to do. These are the kids that are coming into your classroom. Viewing pornography, it's not so bad, only three out of ten. Now, consuming electricity and water is a bigger offense than those other two things I just mentioned. Overeating. One out of two thought that was, that's really, really wrong. And so you have the situation where recycling, how many of, let's see, does this church recycle? It does, Yes. Does your church recycle? When a millennial comes into your church, and if you don't recycle, you have offended them when they come in your door. So if you say, I want to reach the millennials, you put a recycling bin at the entrance, and it puts them at ease. Is it a true statement? I remember when I was, uh, I'm not for or against, in, po in politics, I'm, I'm, I'm a I'm not trying to make a case for any side, but I remember after this year's State of the Union address, I after President Trump spoke, I changed to MSNBC, and I listened, and there was this millennial guy on there, and he was utterly offended because Donald Trump did not talk about climate change, which was true. And he said, that is offensive. It was an omission that it wasn't what Donald Trump did say that offended him. It was what he didn't say. This generation is being redefined and reshaped. And what's important to them is not what, what, what was important to the older generation. So I say that as teachers, especially the older teachers, you have to look at your methods to teach to this generation. And that is your methods from 1985 are not going to work in 2020. That we have to evaluate and go, okay, Lord, what can I do to reach Billy? What are they saying about Generation Alpha? Generation Alpha will be the most formally educated generation ever, the most technologically supplied generation ever, and globally the wealthiest generation ever, their biggest want devices and screen time. Is this true? Generation Alpha, right. Two more quotes about Generation Alpha. <coughs> generation Alpha is part of an unintentional global experiment where screens, think about this, are placed in front of them from the youngest ages, pacifiers, entertainers, and educational aides. I've seen it in church. When I want my three-year-old to be quiet, I give him the eye pacifier, which is my phone and headphones. 
Now, I'd love for him to pay attention, but you know what? I really wish to rather him be quiet, so I'll give him the, the... Our kids are being raised on YouTube. Our kids are being raised on Instagram. And so, and we're letting that happen to some extent as parents. I hate, I'm, I, it's hard not to. This generation, and I say it again, it's an experiment. We don't know what the outcome of this is. It seems like it's going to be bad. But we don't really know what happens when you put a tablet in front of a kid from the youngest of ages. Expect the same pull towards multiculturalism and even further disintegration of gender norms. And if the devil has his way, we, can be pre we pretty much can see that that's the way that this is going to go. But I bring this to your attention because as teachers, we don't really think about who we're teaching. We just see them as people. But there is a generation entering into our classroom. It's Generation Alpha. So as teachers, I want you to put your crosshairs on who is Generation Alpha, figure out what their trends and tendencies are. And so I say to you, there is an immoral push in this generation. They are atheistic, generally speaking. They're more and more, just religion doesn't matter to millennials and below. Tablet time is what is most important. They love technology. That's who the kids are. And so these kids are being raised on technology. These are the kids that are coming into your classroom. So now I have a beautiful six-year-old son. His name is Miles. We adopted him from China. And when, do we have anybody in here that's adopted before? Okay. And maybe your experience was like mine. Did they prepare you for adoption by making you watch videos? See, when they, the social, to, Get me ready for our international adoption. They made me watch 40 hours worth of videos that told me how adoption can go horribly wrong and how, how miserable we were going to be. Because they wanted to prepare us because there's a lot of adoptions that don't go so well. And here's the reason why. What they say is that experts say that the chances that a child who was raised in an orphanage who will arrive with zero problems is zero. It's not going to happen. If your child was institutionalized in an orphanage, and so you ask the question, what causes the delay? Think about the activities that occur in a, in a, in a young child's life. You have a newborn. Do we have any babies here? We've, the youngest I think that we have here looks like about ages two or three, and I think those parents might have left right? But so you have a newborn, right? What's it like to have a newborn as a parent? Awesome. What makes it so awesome? Why is it awesome? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and what do you do for that child? Well, in the first year of life, what's it look like for to have a newborn? You hold them, you rock them, you nurture them. And actually, they've learned that that rocking and nurturing, it actually does things in their equilibrium. And they actually mature because of the touch and the feel. So that interaction is a huge part of helping a child mature. It's important that, you, that children experience love. God made us that way. But what happens for a child in an orphanage during the first years? And so I want you to look up at the ceiling... And don't look away, because that is the first year of life for a baby in an orphanage. They don't have any neck muscles, they can't roll over, and they don't have anybody to come. When they, keep looking up, because that's what they have to go through. When they, they get hungry in the orphanage, 
What does a baby do? While looking up, you can answer this. What does a baby do when they get hungry? Right. So in an orphanage, when they cry, well, the orphanage worker they've learned really doesn't want to help them. So what the orphanage workers do is they, they do things to try to make the baby stop crying, like put pillows over their heads, pinch them, slap them. So what happens if you cry for needs and then that's what happens is you stop crying, right? So these orphanage kids, they don't, their needs aren't met at the orphanage. So what they, they learn these self-soothing mechanisms, they do things like rub the back of their heads on their cribs, and as they get some muscle structure, they start to rock, and they do things to soothe themselves because all of the, the standard needs that they have, you can stop looking at the ceiling if you want, um, all of their standard needs are not being met by any of the caregivers, so they learn their own methods of soothing themselves. At the age of zero, they're forced to find their own solutions to their problems, which causes depression and anxiety disorders. And so they say that for every, uh, let me see if I have it right now, for every three years in an institution, there's one year of delay. So, and that's, that's speaking kindly of it. So if they're a three-year-old, you're adopting a two-year-old. If you're adopting a six-year-old, they're really mentally a four-year-old. Now, the bright news is, is once you adopt them, you can actually nurture them back to a healthier relationship. But what's happening? And so I ask you, what happens when these same children, this is what's happening in our society. When our kids cry out in our society, not your kids, but the kids in society cry out, what do we do? Throw a tablet in their hand. That shuts them up. And it does. It works. So what do they learn to do? When they have this need, they're learned to be pacified with video. That's our society. That's the kids that are coming into your classroom. That is what you are competing with is they already have, because their parents gave it to them, they have an addiction to technology. They really do. And when you take that addiction away from them, they don't like it. I say that to say, your teaching methods have to be ready to counter this. So in video world, in YouTube world, how long do you have, if you have a YouTube channel, how long do you have to get somebody's attention to watch your video? Two seconds, four seconds, I'll even say eight seconds to be generous. So Sunday school teacher, that's how long you have when the child enters your classroom to get their attention. And if you aren't ready for class, you're getting ready and the child comes in and you, hold on, I'll be right with you. You've already spent your eight seconds, right? So I say, in this generation, if you come unprepared to class and you don't get your kid's attention right off the bat, you have to be ready to, to greet the child when they come in the door. You're shaking your heads. It's the truth. But we don't as teachers acknowledge that that's what we're doing. We have to be ready to, to uh, get the child involved. Now, not only do we have to greet the child, but now we have to activate the endorphins in their mind to make them want to participate in what you're wanting to do. And if you don't do that, what do they do? They're addicted. They, they'll, they'll, they want to leave. They want to act up. It's scary, this next slide, but it's the truth. One out of four kids today is spending more than eight hours 
on tablets. So now, here I am. I'm a curriculum producer. And I'm being told by millennials that we are not giving millennial teachers what they need to teach because the millennial teachers are just as guilty of this. The millennial teachers need this short attention span too. So you're going to watch a change in Word of Flame curriculum, in PPH curriculum. It's going to happen because it has to. We, because it's, I'm not about doing it the way we did it yesterday. We have to reach this generation, and this generation has this many needs. So if you're an older teacher who's been watching Word of Flame for the last three decades and you're comfortable with the way we're doing things, I've got bad news. I have to change because we're not going to minister to the teacher or to this generation of kids. So, and, it's, and it's going to cost, you are going to be pushed. And I hope that you're willing to embrace that push. Because that's what it's going to take to reach this generation. Because once again, our focus has to be, I don't know if this is the last generation, but Pastor Beardsley always, you know, we can't put a timeline on the end times, right? But it feels like Jesus is coming really soon. This could be it. This could be the generation that gets to see the Lord descend. And we might be there with them. We may not. I don't know. But I know that just Generation Alpha, the, the, the world thinks that they have this generation in its hand. They think they've got it under control and they can crush it at any time they want. Not so much, though. We're not, are you going to let that generation go? No. So what happens when a child who has developed his own coping me- mechanisms enters into your classrooms? What can you do? And that's the question I want you to address. So what I'm going to do here for the rest of this, uh, this session is I'm going to discuss some methods that we can use for when those difficult children come into your classroom. Sometimes these difficult children have special needs, but sometimes it's just they're the children of this generation, and they all have special needs. Because as long as they don't know Christ... They have a special need, right? You feel me? So what can we do as teachers? It's a great. Well, that is, one, that is definitely one thing, and we'll get to that. The first thing that you have to do, but yes, I do, that is definitely one thing, is to give them a safe environment. So, and that can be harder than it first appears, but when a child, when children come into your classroom, is your classroom set up? Is it safe? For example, and, I, and if I'm punchy in the, in the arm on this one, I'm sorry. Toddler classrooms shouldn't have tacks or staples. Why not? Because toddlers put things in their mouths. And anything that can fit through a toilet paper tube can fit into their mouth. And so anything in a toddler classroom that is smaller than that hole better be edible. And if you have a classroom, it may look incredible, but if you make it filled with things that are going to poison the kids or they're going to choke on, you've made an unsafe classroom. Is your classroom safe? Do the kids feel safe when they're in their classroom? We're working with difficult difficult children here, just addressing some needs. 
Have you ever thought about what Jesus, what was on Jesus' agenda the day that he crossed the lake of Gadarenes and came in contact with the the demon-possessed man? Do you think that Jesus planned that day? I'm going to go across that lake. I'm going to get off the boat. A demon-possessed man's going to come, and he's going to flank me, and I'm going to pray demons out of him, and then I'm going to cast those demons into 2,000 pigs, let them run off the cliff. Do you think that was Jesus' plan? That's crazy, right? But that was the teachable moment of the day. Which story are we talking about? Are we talking about the plan that he had for the day or the teachable moment of the day? When special needs come into your classroom, you have an opportunity. A lot of people don't see it as that, but this is your opportunity. When a kid comes in and he is acting up, let the story begin. Take advantage of the teachable moment. And sometimes that involves abandoning, I'm, I'm the curriculum producer, abandoning the lesson plan. Because your entire class is watching how you are going to react to little Billy. Because they know little Billy's here and he's going to be a terror today. And so they are watching you and going, what are you going to do, teacher? And this is your teachable moment. So the lesson doesn't matter at that point. What happens is you got to get in the spirit and you got to be a supernatural teacher. Praise God. So you have a difficult child that comes in and you have to ask the question, does this child have a special need? Sometimes we don't, we just assume that the child is a difficult child without going, hey, maybe there's something causing this. Sometimes even in adults, I, I've, I have found it interesting as we've become more uh, aware of autism, I've heard some people recognize that there's adults that are on the spectrum that we never, we just thought that they were a little unusual. And they, but to say, but sometimes the things that we, we recognize as being obstinate or complicated is a special need. And once we recognize that it is a special need, then there's things that we can do, manipulatives, to, to fix this. But until we, if we just go, no, he, he's just a horrible child. That, well, okay, there's no solution for that. But there are solutions. But if you can recognize... So how do we address if there is a special need? Now, if you come across a special need, as we discussed with Denise, we have Able Ministries, and it is a resource. It's a wonderful resource. Number two, more importantly, is you got to get the parents involved if you can. Now, in bus ministries, this is a lot harder, right? How many of you have bus ministries? Anybody? Bus ministries causes, it's fascinating to deal with, with difficult children in bus ministry because... It's, sometimes it's harder to get the parent involved in, but sometimes the parent, you are the exact answer that they're looking for. But when you have a difficult child come into your classroom, find a way, if you can, to talk to the parent and get them involved. If the parent is in the church, that's good. If the parent isn't in church, get to the home and ask them, hey, can I talk to you about your child? Your child's been coming to my class and I'd like to talk to you. And usually they will welcome the intervention. Now, Denise talked about this spiritual individualized and IEP, and most of you were aware of what an IEP is. So this is a powerful tool to use, and you have this at, uh, in your Word of Flame material if you're using Word of Flame. So you get the parent involved, and you start asking the questions. Common behaviors of the difficult children are, are things like shutting down. They refuse to do things. 
acting out, aggressive or non-aggressive. Aggressive means that they act out, they can hit. You have those kids that want to hit and kick and destroy. Non-aggressive are things like they act silly and distracting. Have you ever had that kid? They're not being bad. They're just being really silly, but you still can't teach. They're lagging in social skills, and sometimes they're lagging in executive function skills, which is executive function is just they, they, they can't go towards a goal. They can't, they're not goal-oriented. So here are some questions when you have these difficult children into your class that you can ask. Once again, I, I bring this up. It seems like common sense, but when we have difficult children in our classroom, we forget, we just don't ask. We don't think about it. Is there a medical cause for what I'm seeing in this child? What is this child? How do they act at school? Do they act like this at school? Because certainly the school wouldn't deal with this, right? Once again, who are we asking? We're asking the parent. What, have you, when you have a difficult child, have you ever talked to the parent and said, hey, is, is there a plan for correcting this behavior at home or at school? What do they do with this kid? What incentives do they use to make, make her behave? <clears throat> what specific behaviors do I need to be made aware of? And the parents, well, sometimes they'll spell out the things that you need to watch out for, right? Oh, they, they, whether they're aggressive, whether they're acting out, whether they cry, whether they're self-harm. The parents, have, the parents have dealt with this a lot more than you have. But sometimes we just think that we're dealing with this, it's just me and this kid that we're dealing with. But we, we, need, we want the parent involved. I don't know if you, when Denise, when she was... Involving the parent, when we minister to the child, we minister to the family, right? They're crying out for us to get involved. So then you have, you, you assess what you need. What, what can I do to address the behavior? And this is, this is where your manipulatives come in. Can I put up any special chairs or mats or charts or soothing rooms? Or can I have Play-Doh or, or something for them to squish to pay attention? How many of you know what a soothing room is? You raised your hand. What is a soothing room? Do you have a soothing room at your church? At your school? How many of your churches have a soothing room? Anybody? See, here's what I've learned. I'm going to challenge you here. I have learned that almost every church has that closet that has everything stuffed in it from the last 30 years. Do you guys have that closet? And you don't even know what's in there, but it's there. It's got curriculum and butcher paper and dried out markers and paints and puppets and everything's in there. How hard is it to clean that closet out and turn it into a soothing room to make it a, a, a ministry room? See, what happens is when, when children, autistic children or, or other, there are some other special needs, when they come and they need this decompression room, and if you have the room ready for them, they can go in there. And what, what do they do? I, I, I've never seen it in action per se, but I believe they just go into the room. They know it's there. Is that right?
And putting together a room, it's not very hard. It's just you have to want to do it. I, and it's, so I say that to say if you had a soothing room ready, you would be ready to meet special needs as they come in. And then when the child is acting up and they feel like they have that need, they know where it's at. You show them where it's at. It's a very simple thing. So anyway, <clears throat> special equipment. How hard is it? Not every church needs a soothing room. But there, some of you, as the special needs comes into your church, you are going to need a soothing room. You might need to plan some special games and activities. You might need to have bubbles ready, some incentives, some gadgets, some stickers, some prizes, some things that makes this special, this, these, these difficult children recognize there's something for them to shoot for. And then you might need a specialized communication system. So, so many times as teachers... We're ministering to the entire class, right? But when Jesus told the parable of the 99 sheep, did the shepherd stay with the 99 sheep when the one was lost? No, he, he didn't. He left the 99. He went for the one. In spe- when a kid comes into your classroom and they have a special need, how important are they in the kingdom of Christ? And so we have to recognize when that child comes into our classroom, that difficult child, we need to break down the walls, tear the roof off the house, and bring them to Jesus. We talked about this a little bit with your ministry, but sometimes you have to break your own rules for difficult children. Example being, a lot of times if there's developmental delays in a child, it's silly to force a 12-year-old into the 12-year-old classroom when developmentally he's not mature enough to be in there. So in which case, break your rules and put them where... He's going, he is going to belong. He's going to be safe where he's going to learn. That's what you have to do. But, don't, but there's people that are like, well, he's 12. He needs to be in with the 12-year-olds. No, that's silly. And you have to be the person that comes forward and says, no, that, that's not going to work. We need to, because we want to reach this child. Praise God. So you have this difficult child. He comes into your classroom. What, do you, what are you as a teacher? What are you responsible to do? Well, you have to provide a safe environment for all of your students. Now, if you know that this child acts out aggressively, well, then you don't put him in with all the rest of the kids without, uh, without supervision. You know, you're not going to put everybody else at risk because you want to reach this one and if he's going to act out and hurt kids. However, most aren't going to be aggressive like that. So, you want everybody to be safe. Also regarding a safe environment, I've seen um, youth classes that, are, that the, they have the church balcony up the stairs. And so then when somebody with a wheelchair comes, they actually carry the wheelchair up the stairs. Is that safe? Is that telling the person in the wheelchair that they want to come back next week? I remember one time I took this guy to this church uh, and he didn't have legs. And uh, I, had, I had gotten him to church, and then it was time for us to go up to the church. And to do that, I was, they had one of those stair chairs that goes up the thing. But in order to buckle him in, well, he didn't have legs. So it was, uh, there was nothing to hold him in. And, and, he, and I was like, well, okay, here, I'll, I'll help you up there. He's like, no, I'm not going to, that's not how we want to go to church. I say that to say, we have to be aware that we're dealing with people with needs. We want them to feel safe when they come to your church. Is your church wheelchair accessible? Is your church, has it thought through what it looks like 
are the bathrooms downstairs with no elevator. That's not going to work. Praise God. Implementation, you got to be consistent in your structure because one of the things that kids, uh, what causes kids to act out is anxiety. They feel unsafe. And so they, they, they freak out. They've learned, I have learned, I did not realize it, but when I was doing children's ministry, how many of you love loud worship music as a children's minister, right? Well, I used to think that all kids love loud worship music until I realized that that's not the case. And what happens in, with some kids is loud worship music makes them have tremendous anxiety. And so there was this one kid that was coming to my class, and every time that we had worship, he was getting in a fight, and he was punching people, and then I'd kick him out. And I decided finally one day in my wisdom to, to actually talk to him and find out what's going on rather than just kick him out. I said, what's going on in there? And he said, well, I've learned that you kick me out when I punch people and that music makes my, makes my skin crawl. So in order to get the response that he wanted, he's learned that if I punch somebody, you'll kick me out and I'll get out in that quiet environment. So I was, I was, I was the problem. My music was the, was the issue. What did I learn? I learned... Well, why, why don't you just come to me and talk to me? Tell me when you're having that feeling, and I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you leave, right? Sometimes we, just, we treat the kids like we have to cure them without talking to them. But if we actually learn to sit down and listen and talk to them, talk to their parents, they're going to tell you the solution that you need to do, but we never stop to just listen. Pastoring's the same way, right? Sometimes as pastors, we, we just... We assume we know what's best for people without ever just really talking to people. Sometimes as Christians, we need to learn to just stop and listen for a little bit. Praise God. <clears throat> You're dealing with difficult children. One of the things that you can do to help with difficult behavior is to post a schedule. When kids know what's coming, it releases anxiety. So you're able to say, let's say you have a schedule on the wall and it says you're going to start with worship and then prayer. Then I'm going to do an object lesson. Then we're going to do the Bible lesson. Then we're going to do a short discussion. And then we have snack and then we have prizes. That's what's on the wall. Now, if we don't get through all that, what don't we get to? We don't get down to the prizes. So now their, their distru disruptive behavior affects everybody. So they're, they're able to look at the schedule that you place out there. And this schedule... Public schools use this a lot, that this schedule is, when they can see the schedule, it makes them go, okay, this is the order that we're going to do it, and they become a participant in your classroom. Guidelines and expectations. I waited until now to share this with you, but, okay, d does your class have guidelines? Hopefully it does. You need policy. Now, once you have your policy in place for your classroom, check this out. Go over it with your students, with the parents present, so that the students know that the parents know what is and isn't appropriate behavior. So that way, when the parent comes in and goes, why did you punish my kid? And you can say, well, she did this. Oh, and we talked about that. So what's the punishment for that? What am I? So the parents don't think that you're picking on them, but you say, this is what this behavior results in. So you have a set of guidelines, you have a, uh, expectations in place, and then, and this is very important in teaching for disruptive behavior, is you have a consistent schedule. And I'm guessing that in a room full of experienced teachers, you guys have a teaching schedule. But 
when you go away from that teaching schedule, you cause anxiety in children. The children know how you're going to teach. They know when the Bible lesson comes. They know when the worship is. They know what to expect when they show up on Sundays and Wednesdays or whenever your, your, your church is. So having a consistent schedule is very helpful in dealing with the difficult child. Praise God. So now comes the evaluation to you. How do you respond to a difficult child who comes into your classroom? And that first one is one of the things that I had to be checked on in my spirit. Watch your tone, volume, and cadence. Have you guys ever lost your temper with a child? What do you do when you lose your temper? You exert your authority with your voice and your body. And you raise your voice and you start talking and you start saying, now if you don't, now your tone, your volume, your cadence, you're doing these things to create anxiety in the child. We use those things because as humans, that's how, is that good teaching? No. That is our defense mechanisms rising up in us. But what do we need to do is we need to stop. Watch our tone, our volume, our cadence. Make eye contact. Get down on the child's level. Just getting on your knees on a child's level helps them to accept what you're about to say. I try to, when I talk to most children, I will try to get down on their level. And my wife, too. She's only five foot. But um, I think she's watching at home. So hello, Layla. Um, <laughs> I might need that, Brother Beardsley. <laughs> so you make eye contact. Get down on the child's level. Respect the child's space. Watch for nonverbal cues. Usually a, a child with disruptive behavior is going to give you all sorts of cues. And if you start learning to watch... You can see that the triggers are getting triggered and you can, you can become a, a problem solver. Avoid power struggles. Have you ever been in a power struggle with a kid? That's a horrible feeling. You always feel horrible with yourself at the end. I, with my kids, my, I have an 11-year-old and a 6-year-old. And sometimes as a parent, you just have bad days. And you get in the, I told you so, you're going to do that because, you know, clean the living room and they don't want to clean the living room and, oh, I'm too tired. No, you're going to clean or I'm going to throw everything away. And it becomes this, and in the end, nobody's going to win in this scenario. Have you ever been there? Yours is coming. You said you got a five-month-old, right? Yeah, it's coming, bud. But those power struggles in the, in the classroom, if you're in a power struggle and, you, and, you, and God taps you on the shoulder, says, you're in a power struggle right now. Back up. Just stop and recognize. And I'm not saying to let them win, but recognize where you're at and go, this is just uh, too, you know, you're just going to come. No one's going to, to stop. In which case you need to address, hey, you know, offer choices. And this is powerful. Um, Especially with ODD, uh, obsessive defiant disorder. Have you ever had that kid that just refuses to do what you want them to do? And what I've learned instead of going, do you want to do this? No. Do you want to do that? No. They don't do anything. No matter what you want to do, it's obsessive defiant disorder. That, that is a special need, by the way. For those of you that I didn't know that was a special need. I just thought it was kids that had a really nasty attitude. But there are kids that are obsessively defiant because that's who they are. In which case, what you do with obsessive defiance is you offer choices. You don't ask if they want to do this. You say, here's your choices. You can do A 
or you, and this is the positive choice, or you can do B. Those are your two choices. You can either come worship with us, A, in which case you're going to have that snack that you're, you're trying to get at right now, or you can do B, which is don't worship with us, and you're not going to get snack. Do you want A, worship with snack, or B, worship without snack? Which choice do you make? And then wait silently as they are forced to say, well, I want that one. And then you go, okay, well, then come worship with us. Offer the choices. When they're being obsessively, and I, I, I fall into this with my, with my son. Sometimes he's defiant with me, and my wife will remind me because I'm trying to get him to do things rather than giving him choices to do, on how to do things. Instead of telling him to clean, ask him if he wants to clean up the clothes or the toys first. Don't just go, you're going to clean. Say, hey, you want to attack these clothes or you want to do these toys? Which one? Well, I'll do the toys. Okay, okay. Maybe I'll help out with the clothes then, you know. <clears throat> Choices. We're ministering to difficult children here. Communication boards and charts is a powerful way to deal with difficult children, is to have the, the choices laid out. And sometimes you have nonverbal children, and so you have to have your choices laid out in pictures. Once again, this is those, if you're dealing with special needs, you recognize as a teacher, when you ask those questions of parents, what are some things that we need to discuss in communication strategies for your child? And these picture boards are huge. What kind of stuff do you have on the picture boards? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you let and so these non these kids that are nonverbal they still communicate. You just have to learn to communicate with how that they communicate. So you have to give them the ability to express, or if they need to go to the bathroom, <laughs> or if they're hungry, or if they're you know. Uh, all these things. So you have these communication boards and charts, and then this is the most important thing. It's hard to do sometimes is to stay positive, right? If you feel yourself getting angry, step away, put somebody else in charge because you will probably do something you regret. Hallelujah. How to calm an upset child. Stay calm. Remember your communication strategies. Watch your tone, your volume, your cadence. Get on the child's level and acknowledge their feelings. Why are they acting out right now? What's going on? Man, I see that you're, you're, you're being ridiculous right now, and I don't know what's going on. Can you tell me what you're feeling? And they're going to tell you. I see you're, what do you need? How can I help you? And sometimes they're going to tell you something that you can't do or don't want, you know. Or sometimes they're going to say, well, I, I have to, I'm hungry. I have to go to the bathroom. I have to... Sometimes they're going to tell you what, what you can do. Sometimes you can fix it, and sometimes you can explain to them why we can't do that right now, but we're going to do that. I recognize that it's a need that you feel like you have. And then you have the schedule. If you have the schedule, you have your policies. You have the things so you can explain, this is the way we do things around here, and you're explaining the behavior expectations. <clears throat> so then when you have a child who is refusing to obey, you can stay calm. Stay consistent in a firm but loving manner. You offer the choices. Most importantly, you follow through with the consequences. 
the consequences that have been laid out because you have the policies in place that you've gone over with both the child and the parent present, hopefully. And then if it is necessary, and I pray, every once in a while this becomes, have you ever had a very absolutely belligerent child in your classroom? And sometimes you might know in special needs that most of the time the child's going to participate. But every once in a while you have a belligerent child who might act out. And if you know that that is a possibility in your ministry, you can train your teachers and your class to remove the audience. I say that to say, if you know that there's the possibility that a child might act out, that child is acting out for the audience. So for both the audience's safety and to remove the audience so that they don't have the the need to act out, you can teach your class, your students, when I say this code word, that's my key to Brother Nathan, that he's going to lead you down the hallway to another classroom. And I want you to just quietly line up, walk out the classroom, And then do it like a fire drill. Show them that this is the code word for we're going to leave it, go down the hallway to the other classroom, and you're going to leave me with this child. Are you guys okay with that? Because you want to minister to this child just as much as we do. We're doing this in love. Our goal is to reach this child. And so sometimes just by preparing. And so I I know that this is a little bit, it's it's kind of dry. But as teachers, I, I, ha- I have to bring this to you because these difficult children are coming into our classrooms. And as teachers, sometimes it's, it's so easy to feel just frustrated. And I want you to remember that there are things that we can do to prepare our hearts, our minds, our classrooms, our staffs to, to receive a difficult child. And I brought this scripture just as a scriptural means to say, when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. These difficult children that are coming into our classrooms, they are the heartbeat of God. And unfortunately, the kids, the unsaved children that are going to come into your classroom are going to come with a world of problems. So we have to be wise. Our public schools are learning how to deal with these children. And we have to, as, as spiritual teachers, we have to also address that in our classrooms because this is, this is where our, our classrooms are headed. If we say we don't want difficult children in our classroom, we're basically saying we don't want the unsafe children in our classroom. That's not going to work, right? Praise God. So I'm, I, I apologize in a way for the, this is a little bit of a dry session. I can see it in your body language. Praise God. Go ahead and stand up. We are going to take a break here. But I, do, I want you to acknowledge before God, just say, Lord, help me, give me wisdom to, uh, to deal with, with long-suffering, with peace and wisdom. Any difficult child that comes into, into my midst as a teacher. I want you to open up your classroom to the messy. Say, Lord, make my ministry like yours. That's what we want, right? We want a ministry to look like him, and it's going to be filled with needs of the unsaved, with special needs, with difficult children, and that is why God is anointing you as a teacher, because he thought that you were capable of ministering to these children. Lord Jesus, we praise you and love you. We thank you, Lord, even as we've, we've discussed this here today. 
you've brought children to mind. Lord, give us wisdom on how to be ministers, to prepare us, Lord, to receive these little ones. Lord, we praise you. And Lord, we love you. Hallelujah. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, when is he going to give away that chair? And soon and very soon, I might even do it in the beginning of the next session. So we're going to take a short break here. And then we'll, we'll come back together in about 4.03. All right?